0: Andrew Womack Ministries presents part two of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We pray that the word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. This is tape 109 in our Life for Today Bible Commentary series. And on this tape we continue our teaching through the book of Ephesians. We're now in Ephesians chapter 1 beginning with verse 11. And this is on page 1098 of our printed materials. On our previous tape, I gave the introduction and the uh, first ten verses of Ephesians. We covered those. Real quickly, let me just go back through and say that um, he spent just a few verses introducing this letter to the Ephesians. Then in in verse 3 of chapter 1, he really began to make his point about how we already have everything in Christ Jesus, that it's a done deal. And I spent a lot of time on our last tape trying to emphasize that point because I believe that this is so critical that people get this concept. Most Christians believe that there is victory obtainable. It's available, but it's out there somewhere. It's something that has to be worked for, earned, produced, and that causes all kinds of problems. If you start looking at the Christian life as everything is already accomplished in Jesus And it's a matter of releasing what we already have, not trying to go get something that we don't have. If you develop that mindset, it totally changes your entire perspective and attitude towards the Christian life. It takes away a lot of fear and doubt, frustration, all kinds of things. It lends itself to grace. You cannot get into works believing that kind of thing. If you don't understand this, it will put you into legalism. And it will make you despair and miss out on the things of God simply because you are trusting in yourself. So I really believe that this is a foundational truth. And that's the point that Paul is making in Ephesians 1, 3. And then in the rest of the chapter, he just begins to enumerate a lot of the things that are already ours. And he talks about, of course, our salvation, our redemption, that Christ is going to bring together all things in himself, etc. And so that's what he was dealing with in the first ten verses. Now, we're going to take up now in verse 11. Let me just say that he continues to do this same thing. We actually uh, ran out of time on our last tape. So through verse 14, he basically is just rehearsing or enumerating some of the things that we are blessed with in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 15, he begins to pray a prayer for revelation. And, of course, this prayer is on the same subject, praying that we would get revelation of things that are already ours But it's significant here that Paul is saying such awesome things that are so contrary to the way most people think that he has to stop in the midst of this and pray a prayer that God would give the people a supernatural revelation of these truths. And this same thing still applies for us today. I tell you, the things that are said right here are just as contrary to the way of the average Christian's thinking right here today, as they were nearly 2,000 years ago. This is not common. This is actually against the way most people think. And we need to really latch on to this prayer that Paul prayed and receive that for ourselves today. Let me go back to verse 11. He says here, and remember that he's just enumerating some of these things that are already ours, that we're already blessed with. In verse 11, it says, "...in whom," talking about in Christ, "...also we have obtained an inheritance." And again, see, the the emphasis, the terminology, the verb tenses here are very important. It says that we have obtained an inheritance. Most Christians are looking forward to obtaining an inheritance. We sing that song about, you know, when we all get to heaven, what a day that will be. Further along, we'll know all about it. And even though that there's truth there, and it it is going to be a wonderful day to be with the Lord and to see everything totally manifest, etc., the truth is that right now our inheritance is complete in our spirit, man. It says we have obtained an inheritance. This is not something that is yet to come. It is already a reality in our spirit. The only thing that keeps it from being evident in our physical lives is our mind. Everything we've received from God is already reality in our spirit, but there has to be a renewing of our mind before it is able to get out into the physical realm. But we do already have this inheritance now. Your spirit is already as complete as it will ever be in heaven. It's complete right now. It's born again. There is no impurity. There's no sin in it. There's no lack. There's no inadequacy. There's no doubt. There's no questions. Everything in your spirit is perfect. And the only thing that we're doing in our Christian life now is trying to renew our minds so that our mind can begin to start thinking and receiving the life that is already ours in our spirit. And to the degree that we renew our mind, then we will see this life in our spirit manifest, flow through our soul and manifest itself in the physical body. Well, that's a powerful truth. I know I've already said those things on the previous tape, but I'm going to be saying them again. This is so awesome. If people could get a hold of this, it would just totally uh, do away with frustration, doubts, questions. You would know exactly the way that God moves in our life. Now, there's still a time. There's effort. There's a period of time for renewing of our minds And things, I mean, it's not necessarily easy, but it is this simple. It would just, I mean, take away questions. It would give direction, purpose to people if they could understand what we're saying. You have already obtained an inheritance. It's already in you. It also says that you are predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Now, I've already dealt with this when I was over in Romans chapter 8, and I'm not going to go back in. ...to a lot of detail on this because I've already spent a lot of time on it... ...but predestination has been uh, grossly misunderstood. Most people think that this means that God predetermined something. ...that's what the word predestined means, it's predetermined. And they think that God predetermined people to be saved or lost. He, God predetermined people to victory or failure. And there's a lot of people that when they see negatives in their life... ...failure and, and distress and stuff, they blame it on God... ...and say, well, it must have been God's will... That is not what predestination here is talking about. Matter of fact, I already made this point in Romans 8, but it says those who he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. The only people that are predestinated are those who God foreknew, And so, see, if you understand foreknowledge that God didn't determine anything, He just knows what your responses will be. Well, then, based on that foreknowledge, for those who He knew would receive His Son and make a commitment to Him, for those He has predestined, predetermined, that you would be conformed to the image of His Son. And uh, that can happen as much as you renew your mind right here. If you don't do it now, then it will happen for sure when you stand before the Lord you're going to be changed into his image. So again, this is not talking about God taking away your freedom of choice. It doesn't mean that everything that happens in your life is directly ordered of God because that's not true. But it does mean that eventually everything for those who are already born again and have obtained this inheritance, those people will be like Jesus someday. If nothing else, when he returns, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. And it says that all of us who have already received this inheritance are predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. And then in verse 12, it says that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Now, in verse 11, he had just said that he's working all things after the counsel of his own will. And then in verse 12, it shows you what that will is. The will of God is that we should be to the praise of his glory. You know, when you're trying to discern God's will for your life, you can just write this down, and it's something that will always hold true, that God will always lead you in a way that will bring praise to his name. Now, there is more to finding the will of God than that, but those are some very broad parameters that if anything that is presented to you does not fit within those parameters, then you can just write it off that it's not God's will. God's will always brings praise to him. You know, if a person is debating about something, say, for instance, you're in a business situation where it's normal for the people who are salesmen in your line of work to lie and to steal, and they just take advantage of people. They don't tell the consumer the whole truth, and it's just the way that business is done. And you're saying, well, I don't really want to do things that way, but this is what my boss is demanding. If I don't do it, I might lose my job. God, what would you have me to do? You know, there's a lot of scriptures on this one, but this one right here, it says that he's working everything so that it'll bring praise to his glory. Are you going to really be glorifying God by being dishonest, by lying about something, by cheating? Are you going to be glorifying God? I mean, if this person that you're trying to make a sale with was to know the total truth, would you impress them as a godly witness? And, And if you turned around, if they knew the truth about what was going on behind the scenes and then you tried to witness to them... Would they have seen Christ in you? Would it have made them more acceptable to, or more receptive to the gospel? Well, if you'd have to say, no, man, if they knew it would not help my witness, then you can say, this is not God. I tell you, it's just so simple. People make such a big thing out of finding the will of God, but really, if you just go to God's Word and what does God's Word say? What's God's will for you? And and establish that this is the way I'm going to be. And anything that doesn't line up with that, it's just not God. God will never lead you contrary to the Word of God. And so that's what this is saying, that He has predestinated us to, uh, so that He's working all things after the counsel of His own will, which is that we should be to the praise of His glory. And so anything that helps bring praise and glory to God, you can know that that's God. Anything that doesn't, it's not God. Now there's a little bit more... To it than that, somebody might say, well, boy, it would bring praise and glory to God for me to be a world evangelist and see a million people one to the Lord. Well, certainly it would. But, you know, is that what God has called you to do? There's a little bit more to it than that. But I can say this emphatically, that if it doesn't meet this first step, if what you're praying about does not glorify God, it's not God. Don't do it. If it cannot bring glory to God, if you can't do it in a clear conscience and preserve your witness, don't do it very, very simple, in verse thirteen, it says, in whom ye also trusted, after ye heard the Word of truth, the Gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that holy spirit of promise, and so Paul here said that in verse twelve that they had first trusted in Christ, and then once these Ephesians heard the Gospel, that they also believed. you know the word gospel here means good news. And the news is something that has already happened. Like, for instance, when you listen to the news on television, they're reporting things that have already happened. It's not the good prophecy, or it's not the evening prophecy about what's going to happen. Now, sad to say, that's getting more and more like that. Our news media today is creating the news instead of just reporting it. But still, as a whole, the word news refers to something that has already taken place. They don't talk about all of the planes that are going to crash next week or next month because that's not news. That might be an investigative reporting and they might make some speculation. But you see, the point that I'm making news means that it's something that has already taken place. Paul here said that you heard the good news, the gospel of your salvation. See, salvation is something that's already accomplished. When a person comes to the Lord to get born again... God doesn't have to die for them or do anything to make atonement for them. It's already been done. The atonement for every person's sins has already been made. The things that it takes to produce salvation in any person is already done. And so, see, that's good news. It's something that's already done. And it's just a matter of you believing and receiving. You don't have to do something to make it happen. Boy, if we could really get hold of this concept. And again, Christianity or religion has made everything that it's available, it's possible to happen, but they don't look at it as good news, something that has already happened. The Christian isn't headed towards victory. He is coming from victory. We are already victorious in Christ. We are already redeemed. We are already set free. We're already healed. We're already blessed. We've already been given all wisdom and prudence. All of these things have already been deposited in us, and it's a matter of releasing them and not going and getting something that we didn't have. I tell you, if we would look at things that way, it would revolutionize our relationship with the Lord. And so he says that you heard the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed you were sealed with that holy spirit of promise, you know the Greek word for sealed here it literally means to stamp with a signet or private mark for security or preservation. This is talking about that once you believed, you were created in righteousness and true holiness. I'm going to get to that scripture over in Ephesians chapter four verse twenty four it says "Put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness." and true holiness. When you got born again, immediately your spirit was totally changed. And there's so many scriptures. I've already used 2 Corinthians 5:17 when we were there about that you're a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. When you get born again, your spirit is instantly changed. It's perfect. It's sinless. It's pure. There is no impurities. You are forgiven forever. But then see, some Christians think, well, I know that when I got born again, that was true. But then as soon as they sin after they're saved, as soon as they fail and begin to have impure thoughts or any of these kind of things come at them, a lot of people, they feel like, well, they've lost that purity. They've got to confess it. And if they don't confess it just right, if they forget, if they don't mention something, a lot of people feel like that at one time I was cleansed, but... I've got to be re-cleansed over and over and all these kind of things. What actually happens, this scripture is saying that once you believe you were sealed with that Holy Spirit, your spirit, which was created in righteousness and true holiness and is perfect and is pure, is immediately sealed for the purpose of preservation. It's just like when we take food and then you vacuum pack it. Or a woman takes, uh, you know, preserves and puts them in a jar and then seals it with paraffin. And what it does, it it forms a barrier so that no impurities can get into it. It's for the purpose of preservation. Well, see, that's what happens with our born-again spirit. The moment we believe we are a brand-new person created in righteousness and true holiness, and then immediately the Holy Spirit seals us and preserves us so that when a Christian sins after their salvation, after their born-again experience. Their spirit does not participate in that sin. Their spirit is not defiled. Their spirit doesn't somehow or another receive some impurity that has to be cleansed and wiped away. Your spirit retains righteous and holy because it was sanctified and sealed and perfected. Over in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, it says that once you believe, you were sanctified through that one offering of Jesus once for all. And then in verse 14, it says once you've been sanctified, which Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 says that you were sanctified once you believed. And then in verse 14, once you believed and have been sanctified, you also have been perfected forever. And some people wonder, what in the world does that mean? Well, it's talking about your spirit. Your spirit was saved, cleansed, sealed with the Holy Spirit, and it's been sanctified and perfected forever. Over in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 23, this scripture just comes right out and says it in very clear English. He says that you have come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. See, it was your spirit that was made perfect, sanctified, and perfected forever, Hebrews ten, ten and 14. And so, boy, this is a powerful truth. I tell you, I could just amplify on this forever, but I've already dealt with this so many times. I just, I can't continue to spend a lot of time on it every time it comes up in Scripture because it's a reoccurring theme. But this really is important. If you haven't gotten a tape that I have entitled Identity in Christ, it's the third tape in our three-tape series on emotions, you can either get that tape series on emotions as a set, or you can get the third tape just by asking for the tape entitled Identity in Christ. Another tape that would go along with that is Who You Are in the Spirit, No More Sin, Consciousness. Uh, any of those tapes would deal with that, and I really encourage you to get hold of this. Your spirit is sealed, and it does not lose its right standing with God. Now remember that the context of all of this is in verse 3 he says that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings and he just begins to start praising God and enumerating some of them and this is certainly one of those spiritual blessings is that once you believed, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Praise God your salvation is not something that's in doubt. Once you believe on the Lord you've been sealed sanctified and perfected forever. Now, I know that there's somebody thinking, well, does this mean then that you're saying that we are are eternally secure? Do you believe in eternal security, as the Baptists teach? Well, let me say this. I believe that no sin sends a person to hell. If it did, then which sin is it that's going to do it? And you'd have to start categorizing them and saying some sins will work and do that and others won't because all of us have sinned. But the Bible doesn't place that kind of a distinction on sin. It says in James 2.10, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. And so the Bible just says that whatsoever is not of faith is sin, Romans 14.23. So if you use that definition of sin, and if sin caused us to lose our salvation, then none of us would be saved because all sin, even though you're born again, you still sin. But I believe what it is, see, your spirit isn't contaminated by that sin. Sin doesn't penetrate your spirit, but sin affects your physical body and your soul realm. It gives Satan a- avenues into your life when you sin in those areas, but it doesn't penetrate your spirit. And since John four twenty four says that God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, that means that even though a Christian is less than what they should be in their actions, God is dealing with us based on the spirit that has been sealed. And so God is still able to love us and accept us, and a person who even has sin in their life can die and still go to heaven with an unconfessed sin because that sin didn't affect their spirit. And the spirit is the part of them that was saved and born again, the part that God dealt with. Does that mean that I'm saying that every person then, once you're born again, can just live any way you want to? No. Because I believe that even though you can't send your salvation away, you weren't forced to be saved, and you have to stand by faith. So sin, no sin can cause you to go to hell. But what sin does, it dulls you to the receptiveness of the Lord. It hardens your heart towards God, according to Hebrews chapter 3. And if you continue to live a life like that, it is possible that you could actually come to the point of deception or frustration, that you could actually renounce your faith in the Lord. Now, you can't send it away, but I believe that you can reject your salvation. And you can't reject it over and over, but you can reject it one time. There is no such thing as being born again again. It is true that you can be born again and then become reprobate, as the Scripture talks about. But you can't send it away. You don't fall from grace in that sense. But rather, it has to be a total rejection. Now, I haven't got time to go back through that. Like I said, I've already ministered on that. But this is really a powerful statement here in Ephesians 1.13. I use this very often in sharing with people because it just really makes it clear that once you get born again, your spirit is pure, and then it's immediately sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, and that keeps out the sin and the impurities, and it maintains our relationship with God. And then in verse 14 it says, talking about the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His glory. Now this is just, again, saying the same things I've been saying in the last couple of verses here. The word earnest, according to the dictionary, it means money paid in advance as part payment to bind a contract or bargain. Also called earnest money. And then the second meaning is a token of something to come, a promise or assurance, a pledge or guarantee. And that's the way that the Holy Spirit here is being spoken of, that the Holy Spirit is like our pledge or guarantee. It's our promise and assurance that we are going to see physically manifest the inheritance which is already ours in the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, when a person receives the baptism of the Holy Ghost and they begin to start seeing gifts of the Spirit, such as a word of wisdom, word of knowledge, speaking in tongues, faith, and all of the other things that are listed over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when a person sees these gifts of the holy spirit and the fruit of the holy spirit that's mentioned in galatians 5:22 and 23 when they see those things evident in their life it's a proof it's an it's earnest it's like a guarantee that we have received salvation and that there is coming the complete redemption where we see a glorified body and eternity spent with god and it's just a guarantee i tell you that's exciting That really blesses me because, you know, I have seen the Holy Spirit's fruit and gifts manifest themselves in my life. And I know that there's times that the devil will come and play mind games with you and tell you, you know, what makes you think that you're right. How do you know all this stuff is true? What's the proof? And it's very easy to get over into a realm where you want to start seeing just physical things. Well, you can go back and remind yourself. You can just sit back and start speaking in tongues. And I tell you what, it'll immediately begin to start uh, being an earnest, a guarantee that, praise God, I do have the goods that the Holy Ghost is on the inside of me because I used to couldn't do that. Now I can pray in tongues and it's an evidence that the my salvation is real. Notice it says here that it's the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Now, again, a lot of people don't have this concept. A lot of people think that when you get born again, that, man, you're just totally saved and changed. But it's your spirit that got changed, not your physical body and not your soulish realm. And your soul and your physical body have yet to be redeemed. Now, the term redemption here has become a religious term to a lot of people, and they just use it synonymous with salvation. And when you say that a person isn't redeemed, your body isn't redeemed, some people might take that offensively, and they might say, what are you saying? I thought I was saved. Well, the word redeemed, you know, like, like, for instance, when I was a kid, my mother uh, used to get these S&H green stamps, and it was my job to take the stamps and to, you know, lick them and stick them in these books and to organize these stamps, and then she'd let me go take those stamps and trade them in on something that I wanted. But, you know, when we purchased the goods, we got the stamps. The stamps were a earnest it was, a, it was a guarantee that we had purchased some goods, but actually the stamps weren't what we wanted. The stamps were just a representation of it, and what we would do is take those stamps in those books to the s and Green Stamp Redemption Center. That's what they called it, a redemption center, and we would redeem those stamps, cash them in for something else, like a lamp or something that you wanted. Well, see, that's the way it is. We now are born again in our spirit, and we have the earnest, the proof of the Holy Spirit and the effects of the Holy Spirit in our life. But our physical body is not yet redeemed. The Scripture says that this mortal must put on immortality, and this corruptible must put on incorruption. That's out of 1 Corinthians 15, talking about our physical bodies have to be changed. Our soul, our mental part, our personality part is what the Bible calls the soul. And that has to be changed. But your spirit's already changed. So, see, our spirit's changed, but we have not yet seen the redemption of our physical body and our soul. Now, they've been purchased, but they haven't been redeemed. And that won't happen until the Lord comes back and we receive our glorified body. That's what this is referring to. So until the time that we see the glorified body, it says that we have the Holy Spirit as the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Now, see, I'm not minimizing the fact that through Jesus' death, he has purchased us. The blood of Jesus was shed for me, and I have been purchased, spirit, soul, and body. But my spirit is the only part that is redeemed. It's complete right now. It's the same way it'll be throughout all eternity. It has the same power, the same anointing, the same knowledge. It's identical to the Lord Jesus. 1 John 4:17: as he is, so are we in this world. In my spirit my salvation is complete. I am just like Jesus is. 1 Corinthians 6:17 He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. And I am one with the Lord. I am complete in him. But that's only my spirit that's like that. My soul and my body are still the same soul and body that I had before I got saved with the exception that I've grown older. So my body has changed some, and my mind has been renewed. And so a lot of my attitudes and values have changed, but they aren't redeemed. They are influenced and under the control of the Spirit to a large degree, but they aren't glorified yet. And so, see, that purchase has been made, but the redemption has not taken place. We're still waiting on that. Boy, that's powerful stuff. I tell you, I could spend hours and hours on that. Again, I say, I've already done that. Please... Take advantage of these tapes that I've talked about if you've missed any of that, and if you'd like any further ministry on it, I promise you it would be a blessing to you. So after saying all of these things in verse 15, Paul begins to pray a prayer for the people, and it goes all the way through the end of this chapter. And he says in verse 15, Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all of the saints. Now, before I actually get into this prayer, let me just mention in verse 15, he is not Praying a prayer here for a group of reprobates. He's not praying for a group of people who are just rebellious and not receiving the things of God. He's actually commending these people for their love and their faith. And so this was a good group of people. This is people that were born again, they were loving God, they were operating in love towards their brothers, and yet Paul was praying for them that they would get a revelation of more. And, you know, one of the points that this makes is that even people who love God and people who have a good relationship with God, there is always more in the Christian life than what you have ever understood and appropriated. I tell you, the wisdom and the height and the depth, the length and the breadth of the love of God is just greater than you can comprehend with your little finite mind. And we are in a progression of just getting more and more and more enlightenment. Nobody has ever understood everything. And see here is evidence of it. Paul is praying for good people, people who have faith in the Lord and love unto others, and yet he's praying that they would get a greater revelation, more knowledge about what they've got. I tell you, any time a person thinks that man, I've got it all figured out, and that I know everything, and that I'm, you know, don't need anybody to teach me anything, I don't need to receive any more revelation. A person who is saying something like that is deceived. There is just so much more to the Lord than what we could ever plumb the depths of it in our... You know, if you live 500 years, you'd still be learning more and more and more about the Lord. I tell you, you need to get that kind of an attitude. You need to take this prayer that Paul is praying and personalize it and put your name in there. Actually, there's two prayers that Paul prays here in the book of Ephesians. uh, Right here in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15 through the end of the chapter, and then also... In Ephesians chapter 3, I believe it's verse 14, he starts praying a prayer there all the way through the end of that chapter. And both of these prayers are very similar in their content. They're both asking for wisdom and revelation of what people already have. And um, I tell you, these are powerful prayers. One of the things that I've done before is go through and just change it from where Paul said, I pray that you... Might understand, I change it and I say, Father, I believe that I receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, that the eyes of my understanding are enlightened, that I might be able to comprehend with all saints. You know, that's the prayer over in the third chapter. And I just personalize it and put my name in there. You know, when Paul prayed a prayer, you know it was according to the will of God because it was God breathed, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the scripture says over in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. Well, God's word is his will. So when you pray a prayer directly out of the Bible, and you just put your name in there, you know you're praying according to God's will, so you can know that he hears you. And then in 1 John 5:15 it says, and whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we've desired of him. And so you can be that confident. I have personalized these prayers. I encourage you to do that and pray these prayers and ask God for this wisdom and revelation to come in your life, and it will come. God wants to give it to you more than you want to receive it. The Holy Spirit is sent to give us wisdom and revelation. If we aren't getting wisdom and revelation, it's not because God hasn't made the provision. It's just because we haven't shown up for class. The teacher has been sent. The instruction is there. We just haven't been spending time and really opening our heart. Well, this prayer will help you to do that. You can personalize this and just pray this prayer and ask God for this wisdom and revelation. I have done this. I still do it. But there was a time in my life that every day for six months, I prayed this prayer here in Ephesians chapter 1 and asked God to give me revelation and I I tell you, after six months of doing that, my head, I began to start receiving so many things. God started opening up my understanding that a lot of the things I'm teaching now, over 20-something years later, came out of a result of praying this prayer every single day for six months. Now, I still do it, but I'm saying that uh, there was a time that, boy, I just was focused on this, and it has revolutionized my life. I know it will work for any person listening to me. It is God's will to reveal these things unto you, but it takes a supernatural spiritual revelation. You can't just comprehend it with your brain because this is talking about things that are true in the spirit realm. Like going back to verse 3, God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And how do you understand what is spiritual truth? How do you see and perceive into the spiritual realm? Well, of course, the Word of God reveals it to you, but it takes the Holy Spirit cooperating with that Word to give you to breathe upon it and bring it to life and make it reality in your life. Well, I can't overemphasize this. You need this revelation that Paul is praying right here, and all you got to do is just receive this prayer. So in verse 16, it says that he ceases not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And, you know, here, an important part of prayer is giving of thanks. Paul starts off by saying that he had been giving thanks for these people, making mention of you in your prayers. You know, a lot of people, to them, prayer is an opportunity to go in and just pour out all of your complaints and problems to the Lord. Now, that is a part of prayer. And the Scripture does say, you know, to come before the Lord and cast all of your care upon Him and... uh, you know, let your request be made known with joy, etc. There is a place for requesting, for telling the Lord how you feel, for going to the Lord and, and airing a problem in your life. But it certainly is not the place that most people ascribe to that. Most people's prayer life is just basically contained in nothing but all of the problems that they're having, griping and complaining. Something that will change that is if you will get hold of this truth that you are supposed to enter into his courts with praise. And into his gates with praise and in or let's see, how does that go? It's in Psalms chapter one hundred, verse four, it says, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. That's the way that we were told to approach the Lord. If you would begin to praise the Lord at the beginning of your prayer, it would keep you from degenerating into this griping and complaining. Also in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. Notice it says that you're supposed to with thanksgiving let your requests be known unto God. If you would begin your your prayer with praise and thanksgiving, that's the way that Jesus told us to pray in the 6th chapter of Matthew, when he taught us what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer, he started off by saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, praising God, and then you end it with praise and thanksgiving to God. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In other words, it's a kind of a sandwich technique. You start with praise, you insert your need, and then you end with praise. That keeps you from just griping and complaining and focusing on the problem. It makes you become positive in your prayer life. Well, that is a powerful, powerful truth. And so praise will keep you into a positive way of praying. And that's the way that Paul had been praying for these people. He was giving thanks for them, making mention of them in the prayers. And in verse 17, notice what he said, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, in verse 8, I believe it is, Paul had already prayed or he had already said that God had abounded towards them in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. And now here he is saying that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Some people look at that as being, you know, contradictory and saying, well, he said you already had the wisdom given to you. Now he's praying that you'd get a spirit of wisdom and revelation. What does this mean? Well, it's not contradictory at all. The real key to this is in understanding The word spirit right here, I believe. The word spirit is the Greek word pneuma in the New Testament, and it's the word that we use when we refer to the Holy Spirit, etc., talking about a born-again spirit. And the predominant way that that word is used is to refer to a part of our being, like when you say you're born-again spirit. Or if you're talking about the Holy Spirit, you're talking about an actual person of the Holy Spirit. But the word spirit also means in Scripture a mental disposition that's what strongs concordance defines it as and it can be mental disposition and that's the way that the word spirit is being used here in other words verse 17 he's praying that the god of our lord jesus christ the father of glory may give unto you the mental disposition in other words in our spirit you already have wisdom and prudence it's been given unto you first john chapter 2 you have an unction from the holy one and you know all things 1 Corinthians 2:16. You have the mind of Christ, and etc. 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 It goes on. Colossians 3:10 says that you've been renewed in knowledge after the image of Him that created you. In your born-again spirit, you have all wisdom, all prudence, all knowledge, all revelation. Your spirit is complete, but it needs to come from your spirit into your physical mind. It needs to become your physical mind's disposition it needs to become a way of thinking in your mind so see what paul is actually praying here is that the people would begin to start receiving out into their mental realm that they would get understanding in their mind of what they already know to be true in their spirit the born again spirit is complete already knows everything it's not we we aren't trying to educate our spirit we're trying to educate our mind trying to renew our physical mind to match up with what is already true In our spirit. Boy, that's radical. I tell you, there's a lot of people today that teach that we're trying to train our spirit. No, the spirit doesn't need training. The spirit is born again. It is complete. We've already received everything. And what we're doing is trying to renew our mind so that our mind can reflect and release what is already true in the spirit realm. And so this is what he's praying for. He's just praying that what is already true in the spirit would become true in the physical and you do that through the renewing of the mind so notice in the 17th verse he says that god would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him now he's not praying that god would give them something new and i believe this is really significant you know when i go to meetings and i hear ministers pray for people and lots of times when i have people come to me people are basically trying to get something that they don't have And they're praying that, oh, God, just go touch this person. Give them a double dose of your power. The truth is that person's already got all of the power that it takes to do anything on the inside of them. They don't need more power. Now, they might need more manifest. They might need that power released. And I know that you could split hairs here. And uh, I'm not encouraging that at all. But I'm saying for the purpose of understanding, you need to recognize that the truth is you don't need a double anointing. What you need is twice as much of the anointing that God has already given you, released, manifest in your life. In the Old Testament, you know, Elisha received a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And he did twice as many miracles, etc. And I've heard people in the pentecostal circles, say this is double portion now we're gonna believe god to just give you twice as much of the holy ghost well i would agree with this that everyone could use twice as much of the holy ghost power manifest in their life they could use more of the holy spirit functioning in their life now that's true but it's incorrect to say that through somebody laying hands on you or something, that you can get twice as much of the Holy Ghost. The truth is, when you got born again, and when you received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you got as much of the Holy Ghost as you can or will ever get. Now, the Holy Ghost can get more of you. And see, now, in that sense, it's true that, yes, you can have twice as much power because maybe you aren't yielded to the Holy Spirit. And as you yield, the Holy Spirit can have more of you and can manifest himself freer through you. But it's incorrect to say that you are getting twice as much of the Holy Spirit, that you're getting a double portion, that the anointing is doubling, that it's increasing. It's okay to say it's it's going to increase as long as you understand that it's not God giving you something new. You've already been made complete in Christ. This is what he's praying. He's not praying that you'd get more of anything, but rather that you'd get a revelation of what you already have. The body of Christ today as a whole is trying to get more. They are already identifying with unbelief, something contrary to what God's Word says. Instead of saying that I am complete in Christ and I've got everything I need, healing is mine, and I refuse to be sick because I'm already healed, I'm going to release it. Instead of having that attitude, they embrace sickness and they say, oh God, I'm so sick. Oh God, the doctor says I'm going to die. But I know you can heal not half healed, but can heal, and I'm going to stand and I'm going to pray and I'm going to believe that you will, future tense, heal me. See, a person who's believing like that has already embraced sickness, has already embraced defeat, and is trying to work from defeat to victory. The proper way to respond is to say, hey, I've already got everything. By his stripes, I was healed. First Peter 2.24 I'm already healed, and I am not going to fight to get healed. I'm going to fight because I am healed. Satan, you will not steal this from me. I will release and manifest the healing that is already mine. Can you tell the difference in those attitudes? One is full of faith. The other one is full of maybe desperation and pity and, and a lot of different things, but it's not faith. Well, I tell you, this is really powerful. We've already got everything. He's not praying that we'd get more, just that we would get revelation of what is already ours. Praise God. These are some of the most awesome scriptures in all of the Word to me. This has changed my life. In verse 18, here's what he's praying, that you'd get this spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. Verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Now, again, what's he praying? He's not praying, oh, God, give them twice as much faith. He's praying, open up their eyes, the eyes of their understanding. This is just a metaphor for saying, you know, that you can see things mentally. You can understand. You can grasp. You can comprehend things with your mind. And, you know, some things you just can't see physically. Like, you know, I was talking to someone the other day, and as they were describing some things to me, they were trying to describe their outlook, their vision that they had for something and they said do you see that well there was nothing to see in the physical they hadn't painted me a picture physically it was with words they were trying to communicate and they said do you see that you can see things with your mind like if I started describing something to you you know like a plane I told you that I flew on a plane, and then I got to describing this plane, that it had a second story to this plane, and that you took this spiral staircase up to the first-class cabin, and you actually got to sit up there in that part, you know, that had this little bump up uh, on the top part of the plane. Well, most of you know exactly. See, you can see it. You know that I'm describing a 747 jet. Well, see, that's what you saw that with your mind. You didn't see anything right now. you're listening to something audibly, but yet you can see things with your mind. Well, this is what he's talking about. He says the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Do you know there's another side to this? The eyes of your understanding can be darkened. Talks about that over in Ephesians chapter four verses seventeen and eighteen. We'll be getting to that. The positive side is that you can get revelation. You can begin to start seeing and comprehending with your mind and your understanding things that you didn't know before. The negative side is that you can also be blinded. In the same way that a person can't see anything if they have their eyelids closed, you can't see anything with your understanding if you have your mind closed. And when people have their mind closed to the supernatural revelation of God, I I guarantee you, you just can't receive from God that way you've got to begin to start understanding some things. And this is how Satan is keeping so many people in bondage today. He's come in our society. He has just nearly eradicated a lot of the godly influences and morality and, and godly standards, and he's, and he's portraying that everything goes. There is no absolutes. Everything's relative. Whatever feels good, do it. That kind of thinking just makes you blind. It closes your understanding. It keeps you from seeing and perceiving things. And Satan is coming against us with words, trying to deceive us. And if he'll do that, then he can close your mind. You've got to stand against this. And one of the things that you can use to stand against it is this prayer right here. This is something that you need to pray on a regular basis. God, open up the eyes of my understanding. You know, some of the translations here actually use uh, the eyes of your heart. It's the same thing that he's talking about here. you just need to get, you need to start seeing with your heart. you need to start letting God illuminate you and receive supernatural revelation instead of just operating totally out of your mental ability, carnal mental knowledge. you need to have supernatural inspired knowledge imparted unto you, and the results of this verse eighteen that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Now he's praying here again, not that you'd get anything new, but that you would get a revelation and understand the hope of his calling. Notice the terminology here; It didn't say the hope of our calling; it says the hope of his calling, talking about Jesus. Do you know that when you got born again, you became a partaker with Jesus of everything that he has and everything that God the Father has committed unto him. The scripture says that this way in Romans chapter eight and verse seventeen. It says that we are heirs and joint heirs with Christ. Boy, joint heirship is an amazing thing. We could spend a lot of time on that. But if you just thought about a joint checking account, when you have a joint checking account, it's not either or person can sign and receive money out of that checking account. It takes the signatures of both to make it work. In other words, it's a cooperative. It's a shared thing. Now, I think it's easy for us to understand that we can't do anything by ourselves. But sometimes people miss this, that the Lord will not do anything without us. We are joint heirs. It's not because he doesn't have power and authority. It's because he has committed to us such tremendous authority. He's made us joint heirs with him. We have his calling, his authority, his power, everything that he obtained through his death and resurrection, it's now ours. It's a shared authority. And he's praying here that you would begin to see this. This all goes back to that verse in the third verse of this first chapter about that we're already blessed with all spiritual blessings. Authority and power and victory is not something that's going to come someday when we go to be with the Lord in heaven. The truth is we've already got it in our spirit right now. And as much as you can renew your mind and begin to act like it here on this earth, you can receive that type of victory and power right now. Boy, that's awesome. I tell you what, that gets me so excited sitting here, it's hard to go on to anything else. That's the reason that Paul here was praying this prayer. You've got to get a revelation of this. I know that some of you are looking at your circumstances and looking at your situations and saying, boy, it just sounds good, but you don't understand. I don't see any of that in my life. That's because you're looking in the physical. It's in the spiritual that this has taken place. In the spirit, you are a brand new person. You have the same authority and power, the same calling. The same victory, the same everything that is true of Jesus is now true of you and your spirit. And if you could begin to renew your mind to that and begin to think that way and actually begin to rejoice in it by faith, then it would physically manifest itself in your circumstances. But you've got to begin to start getting the eyes of your understanding. The key to this is you've got to renew your mind. Your spirit is already totally victorious if you're born again. But until your mind perceives that and you're able to function in it, it will never manifest itself into your physical life. That's the reason you must get the revelation that this prayer is talking about. So he says that your understanding would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Notice again. He's not saying the the riches of the glory of your inheritance, but his inheritance. Now, it would be correct to say that it's yours because it has become yours. But it is significant here that he says the riches of the glory of his inheritance. In other words, what you have inherited from God is not just, you know, a little bit of things. Some people talk about. I've actually heard people say this before, that, boy, if I get to heaven, I'm going to be pleased if I just have a shack over in the corner somewhere. Just the fact that I even get into heaven's more than I deserve. And they see themselves as barely getting in, somehow or another having to live on the outskirts of heaven, separated from everybody else because they just didn't deserve it. Well, see, the truth is you don't get into heaven because of what you deserve. If you got what you deserved, you'd go straight to hell. You get in because of what Jesus deserved. It's his inheritance. The truth is that every one of us, even if you are the sorriest saint that is walking the earth today, if you are truly born again, then you have a mansion waiting for you in heaven. Jesus has prepared it. And you're going to live in a mansion. You are going to live under tremendous blessing and prosperity and joy and peace. Not because you deserved it, but because Jesus deserved it. You get to partake in his inheritance Jesus Jesus made us joint heirs with him. Praise God. Boy, that is powerful. And notice it says, that the what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Most of the time when people think about the glory of God and all of his riches and all of the things that pertain unto the majesty and the glory of God, people close their eyes and they picture heaven. And they think about streets of gold and... Uh, a city where the walls around the city, it has 12 gates, and each gate is made of a pearl. I mean, can you imagine how big the oyster had to be made if one gate is made out of one pearl, and multitudes of people can enter and come and go through that one gate? Big, big oyster. And people think about things like that in this New Jerusalem city that's 1,200 miles long, 1,200 miles wide, and 1,200 miles And they think about things like this, and they think about the glory of God. But this scripture says the riches of the glory of his inheritance is in the saints. Do you know the truth is? That even though heaven's going to be a wonderful place, and streets of gold are awesome and all of this, that the real riches of God's glory and his inheritance is in the saints. Right now, what you have on the inside of you, if you are a born-again believer, it would literally bankrupt heaven. Because you have the glory of God. You have the presence and person of the Holy Ghost. You have a born-again spirit. The spirit of his son, Jesus, going into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We have Jesus living on the inside of us. What we have is greater than anything that heaven has. You've got the glory of God. It says over in 2 Thessalonians, it says that we have been called to the obtaining of the glory of God. And it's not something that is going to happen it will be manifest more in the future when we receive a glorified body and a glorified soul that are able to totally release and reflect what's already in us. But right now, we already have the glory of God. The Shekinah glory of God that indwelt the temple, that overshadowed the children of Israel, that overshadowed Jesus and his three disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. That glory cloud of God, that fire pillar of fire by night, that was with the children of Israel, all of the glory that was in those things in the Old Testament, they are now more than reality on the inside of us in our spirit. Praise God. Boy, that's powerful. I tell you, this is awesome. I know that I'm not making much progress in going through the book of Ephesians, but it is hard to go past these things. You know, there's a lot of people that read these verses, and yet they don't get the revelation of it. I tell you, brothers and sisters, this has become a revelation to me. It's changed my life. I'm trying to get this across to you, and I'm telling you that if you would just make this a revelation, if you could get hold of the truths we're talking about right here, I can guarantee you it would change your life. It would change your disposition. Depression would be gone. It would be over with. Victory and power, revelation would begin to flow through you. You need to make this a focal point. Praise God. I need to move on, but this is really good. In verse 19, he's still praying that you would get a revelation of of things that you already have. And he's praying in verse 19 that you would get a revelation of what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now here he's praying that we would get a revelation of the exceeding greatness of his power. You know, it's one thing to talk about the power of God, but then the greatness of the power and the exceeding greatness. It's just like he's putting one superlative on top of another. There's no way to adequately describe this with just words. You have to get a revelation of it. He's praying that you would get a revelation of God's power, but notice it's to us word. That means toward us. It's not just get a revelation of God's power, that God has power. The thing that really makes this reality and powerful in your life is when you recognize that God's power is for you. It's towards you. Now that is awesome. There are some people that know that God is God Almighty, and they have a revelation that God can do whatever He wants to, but they aren't totally convinced that God wants to use that power on their benefit. In other words, they have a revelation of God's power, but they don't know it's really towards them. It's not for them. You must come to a place to where you not only realize who God is and what power he has, but you've got to see his willingness to use that power on your behalf you've got to see that god loves you and that god would no more withhold anything good from you than he would withhold than we would withhold from our children even much much more so with god praise god it's to them who believe a person who doesn't believe this will not see the power of god manifest not because god doesn't love us and want to manifest it but you've got to believe you either believe and receive or doubt and do without You've got to operate in faith to see this happen. And how can you release this if you don't believe that you've got it? See, like he's praying here, you've got to get a revelation of this. And the degree of the power that we have, like for instance in verse 19, it says, What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? According to the working of his mighty power. That word according to means to the uh, degree of or to the proportion of. In other words, what he's saying is that the power that is directed towards us by God is the same power that he directed towards Jesus when he raised him from the dead. Now this is nearly too good to believe. This is the reason Paul had to pray a prayer that they'd get a revelation because you just couldn't comprehend this in your own physical person. He says the same power that is given to us and that is For us, and at our disposal now, is the same power that God used when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Boy, praise God. If you could somehow or another put um, one of these VU meters on the power of God, you know, that shows uh, the increased power, like on a radio dial or something like that. If you were to Put that and hook up the power of God to it and actually somehow or another quantify the amount of power released in different things that God has done. I guarantee you raising Jesus from the dead would top the scale. Raising Jesus from the dead took more power. It was a higher degree, higher volume of power than creating the heavens and the earth, creating our physical bodies. It's greater than any physical thing that you could ever encounter, any physical problem. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the greatest display of the power of God ever, I believe, ever, in the history of the world. And it says that that same power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead is now toward us. It's ours. If you believe, it's yours. Boy, that is nearly too awesome to comprehend. It's true, brothers and sisters. God has given us that kind of power. The only thing that keeps it from functioning is that we don't believe it. We don't have a revelation of it. Most of us, when it comes time, you know, to pay our bills, we look at our bills and then we look at the Scripture and it says He'll supply all of our need, but the bills seem to be more real to us and we just throw up our hands and say, Oh, God, please help me. I don't have any power to do anything. Well, that's the problem right there is that we don't know that God has already given us The power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, certainly it can handle your bills, certainly it can handle your healing in your body, I mean our headaches and our little things that bother us. Cancers, no problem compared to what it took to raise Jesus from the dead. If you got a revelation of this and really begin to start thinking about this and praising God for it, I guarantee you health would spring forth in your body. There are some of you listening to me that need healing in your body right now, that if you just open up this revelation, if your heart, if you could perceive this, healing would come to you right now. You could be healed listening to this tape, recognizing that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is already in you. All you got to do is renew your mind and believe it. Praise God, that's awesome. But the truth is, most Christians are saying, Oh God, I know that you have power. But they haven't got a revelation that that power is towards us. They haven't got a revelation that the power that is working in us is not just enough power to you know, maybe help us to struggle through and still be standing after Satan has done everything to us that he can do. But man, it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. It's enough to blow the devil plumb out of the water. It's enough to overcome any problem that comes your way. If you get that kind of revelation, I promise you, you'll see different things happen. I know that I'm speaking to people right now that have all kinds of problems in your life, but your mindset is, God, please help me. But you're looking out there somewhere, knowing that God can do it, but you don't know that that power is towards you. It's yours. It's deposited on the inside of you. The same degree, the same amount of power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead is already present on the inside of you you don't need to petition god and beg and plead and play upon his mercies he's already done it he's already given you that power stand up and take your authority and use it if you would get that mindset praise god you'd see healing you'd see deliverances you'd see mighty miracles happening i tell you brothers and sisters i just feel in my heart god is ministering to me so strong through this i pray that you're receiving this I pray that you're getting the wisdom, the revelation, the understanding. The same power that he used when he raised Jesus from the dead. That same power is available to you right this moment. It's in you right this moment. It's not a matter of asking God to release it. God says you release it. You get a revelation of it. You believe it. You speak it. You praise God for it. And I guarantee you that power will begin to start functioning in you. Praise God. That same power raised Jesus from the dead, it is now set Jesus at his own right hand in the heavenly places. And notice the end result of this, verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. This is just simply saying that Jesus has not only risen from the dead, but he is above all power, specifically talking about the demonic realm. Over in the 6th chapter of the book of Ephesians, verse 12, it says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Well, that's what he's referring to here. Jesus is now resurrected from the dead, his power is infinitely greater than any demonic power, any human power, any government power, the power of sickness, the power of poverty, the power of anything. It says that hes it's above every name that is named. If you can put a name to anything, if you can say cancer, Jesus, the power that is in you and is towards you is greater than cancer. If you can talk about paralysis, if you can talk about seizures, if you can talk about brain damage, if you can talk about retardation, Down syndrome, if you can put a name to it, anything that we have a name to describe, Jesus is greater than that. And his power is in you. He's above that name. If it's got a name, he's above it. Praise God. And you have dominion over it through Jesus. In verse 22, and that God has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to his church, which is the body, his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. It says in verse 22 that all things are put under his feet. You know, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and also in chapter uh, 15, Paul used this analogy about uh, the body of Christ and about how that we are like a body and that, you know, one may say I'm not the hand but does that make them not of the body the point that he's making is that the elbow is just as much a part of the body as the hand or something that we put more importance on well here he's using that same analogy and he's expanding it here saying that christ is the head and the word head here is just describing preeminence in the same way that the head to your physical body is what controls and dominates i mean your brain is there it's where you make your decisions it's where you see it's where you speak from Your head is the absolute authority in your body. You can live without a finger. You can live without an arm. You can live without a leg, but you cannot live without a head. You've got to have your head. Well, Christ is the head. He is supreme. He is the authority, but we are his body. And it says that he hath put all things under his feet. You know what that's referring to? When you put something under your feet, like right now, if I was to put something under my feet then that would mean that it's under my arm, that it's under my leg, that it's under my thigh, it's under my shoulder, it's under my head. The the foot is the bottom part. When you put something under the foot, that means it's under every other part of the body. So what he's saying here is that this exceeding great power and authority that Jesus has, being resurrected from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, far above all principality and power, etc., that this same power and authority has been put under the feet of Jesus. And the analogy here is that we, the body of Christ, you know, the foot is describing the last member of, In other words, there's not just Jesus that has this power. There's not just a few super saints. There's not just Billy Graham or somebody else who has power and authority. But every member, every cell in the body of Christ has now had this dominion and power that is superior to principality and power, might, and dominion. All of that authority and power is now placed under every part of the body of Christ. And I know that there's a lot of people who say, but I don't see it. I see people suffering. It's because they don't believe. It's because they don't have a revelation of this. It is not because it isn't done. In our spirit, we have the same power and authority that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You have raising from the dead power on the inside of you. It's not God that failed to put it there. It's us that fails to get a revelation of it, believe it, and release it. But the truth is, God has placed that kind of power and authority under us. It's under our feet. And he's the head. And we are his body, in verse 23, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. This is, again, one of these statements that is just so overwhelming that you've got to pray this prayer and ask God to just give you understanding. Because how could it say that we are the fullness of him? It's just amazing. You know, I've got a footnote here where I said it's just like a ship's crew. You know, the ship isn't complete without its crew. Well, it's the same way that God, by his own choice, has made it so that he is not complete without us. He's made us joint heirs. Most people think we have nothing to offer God. Well, we don't have anything to offer God if you're just talking about our physical, natural self and our little peanut brain. But if you're talking about our born-again self, God has deposited so much in your spirit. The glory of the riches of the glory of his inheritance is in the saints. He has put so much, so much deposit in us that he is not complete without us. What a radical statement. But it's not glorifying us. What that's doing is glorifying him. How much he has deposited in us. Man, he has invested a lot in us. And the sad thing is that we just don't know it. We're going around talking about what we don't have, focusing on our problems, talking about all these things when the truth is that in Christ Jesus we are more than conquerors. We are more than complete. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is indwelling us and we're going around letting the devil defeat us by the most insignificant things. You know, a good friend of mine, Clifton Coulter, he made a statement at our camp meeting Recently, And he said that the devil will take a little toothpick and magnify the thing and turn it into a baseball bat and beat your brains out with it. And, you know, that's really what happens with people, little tiny insignificant things. I mean, man, I could give thousands of examples, but probably every one of you can identify them in your own life pretty quickly, but I mean just little things. You know, just because we don't have this or that or because something's gone wrong, because somebody said something wrong, because somebody didn't do this, you didn't get a birthday card. I mean, some of the most insignificant things can get us depressed and discouraged and lonely and all of these kind of things when the truth is that God Almighty indwells us in all of His glory and all of His power. He's given us everything that we need to prosper. I tell you, everything. Every problem that can come into our life, when you look at it compared to what we have in Christ, is insignificant. Nothing is significant. Everything pales in comparison to what we have in Christ. If you could get a revelation of this, I tell you what, it would just change your outlook on life. It would change your whole disposition. Man, it would make some of you that are just miserable all of the time. It would make you blessed and happy and joyful. I tell you, this would change your life. You need to get a revelation of what Paul is praying right here. Again, I pray this prayer constantly, and I pray that you would pray it until it becomes a revelation. Know this, that God wants you to understand this more than you want to understand it. There may be somebody listening to me saying, Boy, I can tell that what you're saying, that you believe it, and that it has touched you and it's changed your life. I can get a little bit excited, but boy, it's just so hard for me to understand this. And some people despair and think, well, it'll be just like everything else. Nothing ever comes to me. I want you to know that God wants you to have this revelation more than you want to have it. And you've got a prayer listed right here that is inspired by the Holy Ghost you can't miss. You know that this is God's will. All you've got to do is personalize it, put your name in there, Pray it until you believe it. If it takes you a week, if it takes you a month, if it takes you a year, pray it every day, pray it all day, every day, asking God for this wisdom and revelation, and eventually it will come. Whenever you get your mind focused on this and your heart open to the things of God, when you start seeking with all of your heart, then you will find the Lord. It will happen. I tell you, I'm really excited about this. Powerful, powerful truths. All you got to do is work it. The Word works. You just have to work it. He just continues going along the same vein, and now he's relating it all back to us. In verse 1, And you hath he quickened. He'd been talking about Jesus being raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, all this power given to him. And now he says, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. In other words, it's no good to see that Jesus is raised from the dead if you don't make it personal, if you don't recognize your union with him and begin to recognize it through Christ. I also am raised from the dead. I have the same power. It's the hope of his calling. It's his inheritance. I'm a joint heir with him. God didn't just save me and give me just enough to help me struggle through and somehow or another survive this physical life. He gave me the same power, the same authority, the same joy, the same peace, the same wisdom, the same faith, the same everything that Jesus has. It's in my spirit. And as much as I can renew my mind, I can draw it out and live in it right now in this physical life. I'm resurrected with him. I've been quickened. That word quickened means to make, to make alive. Now, this is not talking about my physical body. It's not talking about my soulish realm. It's talking about my spirit. My spirit is the part that was reckoned, quickened with him, resurrected from the dead. But I can receive that quickening, life-giving power in my physical realm and soulish realm to the degree that I renew my mind. So in verse 1, he says, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. You know, what does the word dead here mean? So many people misunderstand this because they think the word dead to most people means that it's over, that there's nothing left, that you cease to exist. But that is never what the scripture means. Death in scripture just means separation. When Adam and Eve died, they didn't die physically and they didn't cease to exist. It means that they were separated from God. Over there in Genesis chapter 3, well in chapter 2, the Lord gave them a command and said that you shall not eat of this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. Now he even said surely die, meaning truly, certainly. So he emphasized it. And yet in the third chapter of the book of Genesis, when they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they didn't die physically until 930 years later. That's what Genesis 5.5 says, that Adam lived to be 930 years. So they didn't die physically. They didn't die um, emotionally. They still had emotions. They still felt. And they all of these things. What it means is they were separated from God, and the real death took place in their spirit. Their spirit was separated from God. Prior to that time, Adam and Eve had fellowship with God, and it was similar to the way that God won't you know fellowships with us. God is a spirit. God fellowshiped with Adam and Eve through their spirit. Man. There was a union between God and man. Man was sinless. And he was created in in God's image. God is a spirit. John 4.24 says that. So the real image of God, the part that God fellowshiped with, was their spiritual man. Their spirit man was in union, fellowship, communion with God. And their spirit dictated or controlled their soul and their body. And as long as they did that, they were sinless. When they let their soul and body come under the influence of external things, when they listened to the serpent when they looked at the food, when they chose to obey their own wisdom instead of going with the leading of their spirit, the part of them that was in union with God, that's when they died. There was a separation. They turned away from God and they turned to the natural physical realm and that began to dominate them and man died. And so we were dead in trespasses and sins. Over in Romans chapter 5, I've already made a a big point on teaching this. I won't go back through it in detail, but we were not sinners because of the sins that we committed, but rather it was our sin nature that we inherited through Adam that caused us to commit individual acts of sin. Some people think, well, the thing that made me lost in the sight of God was that I've sinned. No, the truth is that you were separated from God when you were born. You were born with a nature that was separated from God And because you were separated from God in that nature, therefore you sinned. It was not your sins that gave you a sinful nature. It was your sinful nature that caused you to sin. That's what this is making reference to. That you were quickened because you were dead in trespasses and sins. That doesn't mean that your spirit was non-functional. It doesn't mean that it ceased to exist. It was alive but it just was alive independent or separated from God. So in that sense, it was dead. It didn't have the life of God flowing through it. And as it goes on to say here in the third verse, that you we actually became by nature the children of wrath. And so our spirit, when it was separated from God, it actually began to start being united with the devil so much so that we became the children of the devil by nature is what this verse is saying. I tell you, if you can really understand the points that are being made here, it makes salvation come so clear. It's very clear why Jesus said you must be born again. Because, see, even if you could quit your individual acts of sin, you couldn't change that sin nature. Now, the truth is no one can actually quit their individual acts of sin. You might limit them. You might do better than somebody else. But all of us still sin and come short of the glory of God. You cannot effectively do that. But even if you limited it to the point that you were deceived, thinking, well, I'm really a good person now, you still couldn't change your sin nature. That's the reason you have to be born again. Christianity is not just behavior modification. It's not just doing better. And the best people, the ones that do the best, you know, on a scale, on a curve, are going to be the ones that are accepted. No, that's not the way it is. Only those who get a brand new nature are going to be accepted with God. That's the way that it, God made it. And he gives you this new nature. He, When you confess Jesus as your Lord, your old spirit, that was separated from God and actually by nature a child of the devil, according to Ephesians 2, 3, that spirit is dead. It dies at that moment. God takes it away. And then he places within you a brand new spirit. Your born again spirit. That is the spirit of Christ. The same spirit that Jesus had in him. And you receive that spirit, you're immediately sealed with the Holy Spirit. And from that time on, your spirit begins to start renewing your mind and your body. In verse 2, this is Ephesians two. 2 it says, Wherein, in time past, ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. This scripture talks about that every person, once you know sin entered into the world, man began to walk down a path that took them against the things of God, away from the things of God. We walked according to the course of this world. That just means according to the dictates, the lust of this world. You know, there are some people that think, man, nobody tells me what to do. I am a self-made man, and yet they're just deceived. Because, see, if you're walking according to the way that this world walks, I mean, you don't have to be a homosexual to go to hell. You don't have to be an adulterer to go to hell. You can be a good person and go straight to hell. See, the devil, his real rebellion against God was that he wanted to turn people from God. He, You know, if Satan can, he will turn people to himself. I think Satan would love to get people into Satan worship and into every type of vile perversion that just totally makes them reprobate to God. And I believe Satan tries to do that, but he can't do it to everyone. But he can succeed in destroying our life if he just turns us away from God. You don't have to turn to the devil to be destroyed. Just turn away from God. Get to where you are serving yourself. Get to where you are the most important person in your life, and that you are living for yourself, and that you are out to satisfy yourself. You know, a person like that is walking according to the course of this world and that the prince of the power of the air is dominating them. I believe it's important to recognize this because some people think, again, that only those who are demon-possessed are being controlled by the devil. No, I'm not that way. I'm just I'm my own person. I'm doing my own thing. Well, if you're doing your own thing, you are being controlled by the prince of the power of the air. You are either serving God or you are serving the devil, and there is no middle ground. There's no gray area in there. You are either being controlled by the Spirit of God or you're being controlled by the devil. You don't have to be demon-possessed. Just have your own thing. Pride is a great tool of the devil. It is anti-God. Again, going back to the original scheme, the way God intended it to be, he created man to be dependent upon him. He fellowshipped with man every single day, and man, in communion with God, really didn't have his own will, his own thing he was He lived and existed to fellowship and to please God. It says in Jeremiah chapter ten, verse twenty three he says "I know that the way of man is not in himself; it is not in man that walks to direct his own steps and see that was God's original plan. God didn't ever intend us to operate independent of him. He gave us that freedom." but he wanted us by choice to submit ourselves to him. So a person who is operating independent of God is a person who is thwarting God's original plan. They are not going to prosper. They might prosper in comparison to another person, but not. they will not prosper in comparison to what God's real plan and purpose for them is. And so any person who is not Walking with the Lord, if they are walking according to the course of this world, then they are walking according to the prince of the power of the air, is what this next part of this verse goes on to say, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Now the children of disobedience here, just literally, it the word disobedience is identifying someone who is stiff-necked, rebellious. It's not just talking about somebody who makes a mistake, who sins, who falls short who isn't, you know, who doesn't love the way that they should but they desire to, they just aren't perfect yet. And I'm making this point because some people think, "Well, man, I've been disobedient, so does this mean that I'm demon possessed?" No, this isn't talking about just anybody who ever misses it. This is talking about a reprobate or a person who is anti-God. It's actually talking about a lost man, a person who's not yet experienced the saving power of God, for that person, the prince of the power of the air. It's a spirit that works in the children of disobedience. Now, this is talking about, I believe, a spirit. Again, this word spirit can be mental disposition. It may not be referring to a demonic spirit, but if it's not, if it's talking about a mental disposition, it's a mental disposition that was placed there by a demonic spirit, by Satan's power. The bottom line is people who are not born again have spiritual warfare going on on the inside of them. And, you know, many Christians spend their time praying for the lost by asking God to do something. And the truth is God has already done something. He's already made provision for their sins. He's already released his power. And the way that he told us to pray for things is to pray laborers to come across their path, Matthew nine thirty-eight. In other words, pray that somebody will come and speak to them the truth. It's not just a matter of praying for the lost. It's a matter of getting the truth to the lost. So some laborer has to come across their path and speak the truth. And then you can pray this prayer right here where it says that the prince of the power of the air works in the children of disobedience. Well, bind that spirit and say, I bind the prince of the power of the air and I command that deception. A scripture that goes along with this real well is 2 Corinthians four four where it says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine unto them, and they should believe and be converted. So we know that there is demonic opposition in those who are lost. They're blinded. They aren't able to perceive. It's just like somehow or another Satan has made them spiritually retarded. Like I was saying earlier, the eyes of their understanding are not enlightened. They're blinded. And you can remove that. You have the authority and the power to remove that blindness, to command that deception to be gone. You know, I'm not at uh, liberty to give any details on this, but there's somebody I've been praying for who um, just recently, within the last few days, they came to me and, man, everything has changed in their life. And they said, how could I have been so stupid? I didn't see what I was doing. The devil's been trying to kill me. They said, I don't I hadn't seen the damage that I'd done to other people, and all of a sudden, I mean just nearly instantaneously, just like a veil was taken away. They begin to perceive things that I've been praying for years that they would perceive. And how can that happen? How can things just turn around instantly like that? Well, I tell you, there's some spiritual powers involved. God's power is trying to bring revelation to them. The devil is trying to blind them to it. And so there's this spiritual confrontation going on, and this is where your prayers should focus. You don't have to beg God to do something. God's already loving these people. He's already made provision. What you need to do is stand there and take this dominion that you have in Christ and speak it forth over people and command the blindness to go, the deception to go. You God of the world, you prince of the power of the air, I bind you in the name of Jesus and command this deception to leave and for this person's right mind to come back unto him in Jesus' name. I'm speaking in the name of Jesus that they are able to perceive and understand. And boy, if you'll do that, I tell you, God's power will begin to start moving in the lives of people. In verse 3 it says, Among whom we all had our conversation in time past. In other words, Paul's talking about that every person... Before you get born again, everybody was deceived by the devil. Some people think, well, I was never into that. Again, it's it's just your perception that's different. The truth is that before you get born again, everybody was deceived by the prince of the power of the air. And that spirit of the prince of the power of the air worked in every unbeliever. You may not have acknowledged it. You may have thought, oh, no, this was just me. It wasn't the devil. But it was inspired and directed and orchestrated by the devil. Paul here says all of us had our conversation In times past, conversation here means more than just the words that you speak. It's talking about your behavior, lifestyle, way of living. All of us live that way in the lust of our flesh. See, if the the flesh is dominating you, if you're controlled by habits, by desires, if you can't break the smoking, if you can't break the eating habit, if you can't break other habits and things like this, you are being controlled by the lust of your flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. This happened to all of us. Before you get born again, the spirit of disobedience was working in all of us. And we were by nature a child of wrath, even as others. Praise God. In verse 4, he begins to turn this around and talk about the positive side, but I'm out of time on this tape. So on our next tape, I'll continue right here in Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll start with verse 4. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.